So here is a little tale of a misunderstood hero or self-proclaimed hero. We'll call him Mr. Nice Guy. And imagine a gentleman. This guy is an ace in the world of chivalry who paradoxically harbors a deep-seated insecurity that he is about as, I don't know, as cool as a microwave cucumber sandwich. This is a man besieged by childhood fairy tales and societal impressions that have convinced him that being himself is like serving broccoli at a kid's birthday party. It's, it's not very fun. So this nice guy, and I did use air quotes, and let's be clear, that uh, would in essence be his LinkedIn headline, is haunted by the belief that the key to unlocking life's likes and loves and all-you-can-eat social buffet is by becoming the fabled everyman, that everybody will like him, that people supposedly would adore him, and that he could probably be in a relationship with anybody because he's that amazing. It's almost like he's auditioning for a part in, in the grand sitcom of life where any character traits likely to get him canned from the season are quickly swept under the rug. He can be your any man. He can do whatever you need him to do, but he doesn't realize that that's not really the way to do life. And, and there is another quirky aspect of this nice guy syndrome. Well, our hero also has a tendency to expect things like romantic dividends just because he's been behaving like a well-mannered Labrador puppy. Now, according to author Dr. Robert Glover, the man who literally wrote the book on our tragic hero, a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy, this misguided entitlement leads our friend to form a labyrinth of what are called covert contracts, aiming Cupid's arrows with an expectation of reciprocal affection. And when the arrow doesn't quite hit the mark, then he gets as miffed as a, I don't know, a seagull at a, at a chip-free beach. So these sneaky contracts become, in essence, the GPS for his, his whole life's journey, often leading him down a road of disappointment because, let's be honest, life doesn't always play by the rules of niceties. But this tenacious nice guy with a stubbornness bordering on admirable sticks to his beaten path like a, like a lost tourist who's refusing to ask for directions. And I think we've all been there, especially those of us that are maybe recovering nice guys. So thus, despite evidence to the contrary, he continues the same old routine, trapped in a loop of good guy habits that work about as well as a chocolate teapot, and then finding himself getting frustrated and angry when things don't go his way, and then acting out emotionally and immature like a little kid, but then immediately feeling bad and then wanting to ignore the whole situation now that that discomfort is out of him, and then in essence saying, hey, do you want to go ride bikes? Well, on today's episode of Waking Up to Narcissism, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the contrasts of the nice guy, the emotionally immature, and the narcissist. And then we're going to jump into my Facebook group, and we're going to break down what it may look like if somebody is is really attempting, maybe this one of these nice guys is attempting to change. And so then the spouse, the wife, is left thinking, is this real? Is it real or is this temporary? And what do I do? Do I just pretend it didn't happen? So we'll cover some boundary topics as well. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to cover a lot of ground on today's episode of Waking Up the Narcissism. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 74 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, um, husband, father of four, and also creator of the Path Back, which is an online pornography recovery program that I don't talk enough about, I think, on the Waking Up to Narcissism podcast, but it's an amazing program that has a, we have a weekly group call for the Path Back. 
and it is helping people turn away from using pornography as a as a coping mechanism. I'm not jumping in and saying, hey, pornography addiction, because actually by the diagnostic statistical manual that we use as therapists to diagnose, there isn't really such a thing as pornography addiction. There's impulse control disorder, there's compulsive behaviors, but I work with a lot of people that when they feel discomfort, they want to turn to an unhealthy coping mechanism, whether it's pornography, whether it is drinking, their phones, work maybe. But the Path Back has been around for a few years, and I do this call every week, one call a week, and we actually just talk about ways to become better human beings, because when you can get things in alignment, then you have less of a desire to turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms. So I've identified long ago that I think that there's these voids in in our lives. If we don't feel connected in our relationships, maybe as a parent in our work, our health, or our faith then we will go and turn to these unhealthy coping mechanisms. So we we try to address each one of those issues. But you can find out more information and the link tree link in the show notes, or you can just go to pathbackrecovery.com. Now, we're going to talk today about, I, I let me take you on my train of thought. I love, I love movies. Movies are my happy place. When I go to a movie, I completely detach from the rest of the world. And I almost feel this big sense of disappointment when I come out of a movie because it is back to reality. And I love, I love when this can happen, when I go into a movie and I know nothing about it at all, but that's also really hard because I have my own ADHD issues, a little impulsivity, and I desperately want to go look at Rotten Tomatoes and find out what a movie's about, if the movie's viewed as good, even if I'm going to see it regardless of the reviews. But every now and again, you'll watch a movie, and I can't think of one off the top of my head, where there are two or three different, different things happening. And then at some point toward the end, they all come together and you just go, okay, that makes sense. And it's just wonderful. There are also times where you might see two or three different storylines that you think are heading together and they never quite get there and you're a little bit disappointed. So today's episode is going to be one or the other. I'm going to talk about emotional immaturity. I'm going to talk about nice guy syndrome. I'm going to talk about narcissism. I'm going to throw in a a side order of boundaries. I've got a poem that I'm going to read, which is another poem submitted by a guy, and I really appreciate it It's uh, because it also rhymes, I'm going to be honest, and that's maybe a little bit of my male brain enjoying a rhyming poem. And then we're going to go into my private women's Facebook group, and we're going to break down a question that someone had asked that I think covers so much because... The, the person, the woman in the group is put out there that she's been doing a much better job of holding some boundaries and her husband is showing up differently, but then it's hard to know that, it, you know, she says, I know this isn't the aha moment, but he's showing up differently and it's hard to not just want to relax and lean back in and say, okay, we're good. And so I feel like that's going to, all of these things are going to set the stage for breaking down that conversation going on in the group, because I think we're going to be able to address a lot of things. I'm talking about shelf life of the emotionally immature or narcissist of how long can they keep something up if it really is just a checkbox item, what it actually looks like if somebody is doing their own work or deep dive. And then how does the person show up, the wife in this situation, to continue to hold those boundaries, even if now it seems like there's a, a little sigh of relief in the relationship, and if she feels like, oh my gosh, this is what I've always wanted. So so we're going to try to set the table and then, and then deliver. So at the end, hopefully there's either going to be a, oh my gosh, that all came together, or hey, that was a lot of information. So let's start with the poem. And this poem was submitted by another one of my male listeners. 
And I, I believe this is going to start sounding like a broken record or a record that is just continually stuck on this one part. But I have a men's group and it is it is so close to starting up. My assistant Naomi and I have identified a time. I'm going to hold the calls a couple of times a month and set up a, a group. And we have a lot of people that have reached out. So if you are a male and you have found yourself waking up to your own emotional immaturity or the emotional immaturity or narcissism in your relationship, then please reach out at contact at tonyoverbay.com and we're gonna we're gonna get you some more information. But this is another poem from a guy. He says, Who am I? Where did I go? What do I like? I'm not sure that I know. Looking back at times, it seems clear ignoring the signs has brought much fear. There are those brief moments of respite, a breath of hope that this could be it. Is change really happening now? Is it real? It's been so long to even know how to feel. But back into the cycle we go, round and round like a jolly good show. Popcorn moments come again and again. It makes me wonder, when is this to end? I don't give the benefit of the doubt, or so it is said with a big pout. She'll just do what she wants to do, and I hang on to those nice moments even though they're few. As I wake up to this disturbing reality, it is I that feels my mind is full of insanity. Is it I? I ask all the time. Worry grows that she's going to take my last dime. Do I deserve better? Well, Tony says so. There's always more to do, though, before deciding to go. And what about the kids? What will they think? The gaslighting pushes me to the brink. PhD, you say? Well, can you have even more? My emotional baseline is higher than before. Now I am stronger and more emotionally mature. All I am left with now is what is my future. So I really appreciate that. And thank you for sending that poem. And that's that's a guy that is going through it and feeling like he's in the relationship with the more emotionally immature person and wanting to figure things out, wanting to do the work. So this past week, I have a, a person that is also doing group calls in my narcissism group, a wonderful coach named Trisha. And Trisha did a, a group call about boundaries and she and I had a discussion about it. And while we were talking about boundaries... I, I pulled up some information from a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover, which is part of what led to that opening where I was talking about the tale of our tragic hero, the nice guy. So I, I brought that up because I really like the, what Robert Glover says about boundaries. And so I want to read a little bit from the book No More Mr. Nice Guy, and then I'll explain a little bit more about what that nice guy syndrome is, and then we'll get into that difference between nice guy, emotionally immature, and narcissist. So Glover says, I demonstrate the concept of boundaries by laying a shoestring on the ground. But this is when he goes and speaks. He said, I tell the nice guy that I am going to cross his boundary and I'm going to push him backwards. And I instruct him to stop me when he begins to feel uncomfortable. And it's not unusual for a nice guy to stand well back from the line, allowing me to violate his space several steps before he even begins to respond. Now, once I start pushing, it's not uncommon for a nice guy to let me push him back several steps before he does anything to stop me. Sometimes a nice guy will let me push him all the way back to the wall. And I think it's fair before I go on here to say that I do see some similarities in the nice guy or nice guy syndrome and the, the path of the pathologically kind, which is how I often identify the women that I'm working with that are in relationships with these emotionally immature narcissistic men. So not exactly the same, but I feel like maybe the pathologically kind people can identify with this concept of boundaries as well. That if we set a line, you know, we, it's that proverbial draw a line in the sand and then having to keep wiping over it with your foot and backing up and drawing it more. 
And because somebody that respects boundaries would not cross the boundary. And as I like to say that the, unfortunately, the emotionally immature narcissist in, in our lives, they see that boundary as an absolute challenge. It is giving them a source of supply and a way to engage. And remember, sometimes it's as simple as going all the way back to that view of childhood where when we are born, we don't even know we exist unless we are interacting or engaging with another human being. It does not mean we know that we exist if we are sitting back and having a connected conversation while we're having a shared experience watching a movie together. Well, that would be amazing. But it, the emotionally immature version of that is, as long as I am interacting, then I exist. So back to this example. So he said, again, sometimes a nice guy will let, let me push him all the way back to the wall And he said, I use this exercise as a graphic demonstration of the need for boundaries in all areas of life. Nice guys are usually more comfortable backpedaling, giving in, keeping the peace. He said, they believe if they take one more step backwards, then the other person will finally quit pushing and then everything is going to be smooth. But he said, it's not unusual for recovering nice guys to go a little overboard when they first learn about boundary setting. They have a tendency to swing from one extreme to the other. They become kamikaze boundary setters. They try to set boundaries with a sledgehammer or a machete, and they usually learn in time that they only have to use as much resistance as necessary to get the job done. And I bring this up because Glover, in this book, this is where I've come up with this concept that I call calm, confident energy. So when someone is being the nice guy or maybe the pathologically kind woman and just trying to keep the peace and going along with everything just to make sure that everybody else feels okay and we don't want to we don't want to feel uncomfortable and we don't want somebody else to feel uncomfortable as well that then often when one does that long enough then they they will explode and then they'll beat themselves up because they did explode but they aren't somebody that would go around in healthy relationships just exploding at people all over the place but it's after they've had this extended period of time where they just have just stuffed things in. And then remember that body is keeping the score. And at some point it says, I, I have to say something. I have to. But since I've had things bottled up for so long, it's going to come out pretty big. So buckle up because here we go. And in that scenario, then the person goes from super kind all the way over to being a, I was going to say a big jerk. That's not a, psycho, a psychological term. But one of my friends says that being a diaper baby, I mean, and so whatever that looks like, though, just going too big with emotions. And so I feel like on the way to blowing one's lid, going from being pathologically kind or the nice guy somewhere on that road to losing your stuff is calm, confident energy. And a couple of years ago, I gave an example as I was starting to put these pieces together in my own life about how I can show up different in my relationship. This story is going to maybe seem a little bit simplistic, but I think that you'll see where I'm going. We were all home around Christmas. My all my kids were, and my my daughter's spouse, and there were just a, and there were friends over, a couple of friends of a couple of my kids actually staying with us. I think it was it was sometime around COVID, and so various people in different people's homes were getting COVID, and so then you had to quarantine, and our house became a I think a little quarantine hospital of sorts. But we were we were all around a table. I think we we're playing games. It was Christmas time, and TNT. Turner Network Television was showing a, in essence, a Dumb and Dumber marathon, and that that movie makes me laugh every single time. 
And if I go deep and take you on my train of thought, one of the first times I saw it, it was not long after I had learned that a close friend of mine had passed away. And I think it just allowed me to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. So I have such a, a fond, positive, relational frame with that movie. So it was coming on and I don't even remember who said something like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know you liked this kind of movie. And I thought, first of all, I thought, really, um, I, I like all kinds of comedy movies, but I found myself wanting to just say, yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. But then I felt like, oh, that's me just wanting to be this nice guy or acquiesce or give in or not stand in my confident energy because I was trying to read this person and see, well, what do they think? Do they think less of me if I say that I like a movie called Dumb and Dumber that is incredibly childish with, you know, bathroom humor? And then I realized that in that moment, what it felt like to be me as a calm, confident person was just to say, oh, actually, I really like this movie. And someone else in the room said, geez, okay, well, you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to like be rude about it. And I thought, oh, there it is. That's why at times it's hard to just be calm and confident because if people are used to you acquiescing or trying, if, or if nobody is, if everybody's afraid, they're so afraid again, that for some reason, a conversation around dumb and dumber is going to blow up and become contentious, that, that we avoid all tension whatsoever, that then even just a slight bit of tension of me saying, oh, that's funny because I actually do really enjoy that movie it then feels all of a sudden like I am putting everybody in the room on blast. Doggone it, this is uh, snubbed at the Oscars. Dumb and Dumber, I can't believe it. It's the greatest movie of all time and you guys are all a bunch of idiots that you don't think it is a classic. But that's how it may come across if if the pathologically kind person or the Mr. Nice Guy person isn't just saying, oh, yeah, it, I know, it's kind of dumb. I don't know, I don't know why I like it. But, you know, you're right, let's watch something else. But if you just simply kind of stand your ground. And I know it sounds dramatic, but it's almost as if you are holding the boundary of, oh, I'm going to express my opinion. Then it's as if the person is stepping over your boundary saying, oh, I think that's a dumb opinion. And then instead of me saying, well, I think you're dumb, then I'm going to sit there up against that line of my boundary and just hold it. Oh, I, I really enjoy it. I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to question that my ego is being attacked. I just have a different opinion and my boundary might be that I'm going to express it. So here's where I, I go a little more into what Glover says about boundaries. I really, really like it. So we just ended with him saying that people usually learn in time then that they only have to use as much resistance as necessary to get the job done. Sometimes you just have to say, oh no, I actually do like the movie. And he says in time, they also learn that boundary setting is not about getting other people to be different. It's about getting themselves to be different. So in that moment, it can be as simple as getting myself to be different and just expressing myself without feeling like I have to lose my crap or I have to break down somebody else's reality. He said, if someone is crossing their boundary, then it isn't the other person's problem, it's theirs. And this becomes a really, really advanced, amazingly cool concept that when you can, and it takes time because I want to say right out of the gate, this, what I'm about to say is going to sound like this utopian Zen, but then there are other factors that go into being a human being and how you show up in different situations that will come into play. But if somebody then now crosses your boundary, so in this simple scenario, if somebody then starts laying into me that they think that they, they cannot even believe that uh, a 53-year-old man, a professional who puts his opinion out there, likes a, a silly childlike movie like Dumb and Dumber, 
it really is a them issue. Because if I am standing in my calm, confident energy, if I'm holding a, a healthy boundary, then this is a me thing. It isn't about getting other people to be different. It's about me showing up different. And then when somebody else even tries to push across my boundary, it's an opportunity for me to self-confront, self-confront myself. Why, why do I feel that the need to defend myself when it's about something that I enjoy? So, oh, bless their heart then if they, they seem to be very upset about the fact that I enjoy a movie. So when you can calm your own amygdala down and you can just stay present in that moment and your boundary can be, I'm going to express myself. Now I'm watching them push a whole bunch of buttons for some, some reason. Now we'll talk about that a little bit later because the reason's pretty, pretty silly, but man, look at, look at them try to attack me about something I, I like. And then why on earth would I change my opinion just to make somebody else feel better so that then they just go back on to the next topic or the next thing in their life. And then I'm sitting there thinking, man, I'm so mad. Like, why did I, why didn't I say that I, I, I love this movie? And again, that's why we so, sometimes go overboard, but we have this opportunity to learn to set a boundary, to express ourselves, not to get somebody else to be different, but so that we can show up different. And then if somebody crosses that boundary and they, they say horrific things, or they think that we're dumb, or they withdraw, or they say, I will never talk to you again until you renounce your love of Jeff Daniels and Jim Carrey in Dumb and Dumber. Because that is then, well, then we will not talk again, and that's okay. And now I might start to feel uncomfortable on day two or day three of the silent treatment, but what an amazing opportunity for me to self-confront and realize that this is not, it's a, it's a me issue, but the kind of me issue of where, man, I'm okay. Because if our friendship is really now on the line because of this, something that's so silly, then is it really a friendship? Because meanwhile, I may just walk out into the street and talk to a neighbor and we can have a completely different uh, experience where we both like different movies and that's okay. And the relationship, you know, love and respect in the relationship is not at stake just simply because we have different opinions. So Glover goes on to say that because of memory fear, nice guys often unconsciously reinforce the very behaviors that they find intolerable. Because he says that due to their childhood conditioning, then they teach the people around them that they will accept having their boundaries violated. So because of their childhood conditioning, because they weren't allowed to have opinions, because their opinions weren't validated by their parent, then they still believe that for some reason, even though they are an adult human being, that their opinion doesn't matter. So he goes on to say that as recovering nice guys begin to take responsibility for how they let people treat them, their own behavior begins to change. And as they stop reinforcing things that they aren't willing to tolerate, and, and this is such a key phrase, because again, I'm saying that is not going to give the other person the aha moment, but Glover says as they stop reinforcing things that they aren't willing to tolerate, the people around them are given the opportunity to behave differently. And this gives the relationship a chance to survive and grow. Those are key phrases. So as you start to show up different, as you start to wake up to the emotional immaturity or the narcissism in your relationship, this is why I created those five tools or rules or things that you need to do when interacting with the narcissist or the emotionally immature in your life, that that number one thing is to start to self-care, raise your emotional baseline. And that can just start simply by dreaming, by thinking, by listening, by reading by believing. You don't have to go out and run a marathon, but 
starting that self-care routine, raising your emotional baseline is starting to gather knowledge and start to even understand, well, wait a minute, this is not just me. There are other people going through this and this stuff is really, really similar. And then the second thing is get that PhD in gaslighting. Start to understand that you are not crazy. You can have your own opinions. You can remember things the way you remember them. And you can also acknowledge that, okay, maybe I didn't, uh, maybe I don't remember, but, but let's start trusting your gut. Let's even start trusting your memory. That's what part of uh, last week's episode was really trying to, to hammer home. But then that, that after the get your PhD in gaslighting, then I say get out of those unproductive conversations because those are part of what is going to drive you crazy because you are now, you've just stepped in and said, I'll be your supply to the emotionally mature narcissist at the, at the cost of my own sense of self. And that number four thing that I talk about is learn to set healthy boundaries. So I hope you can kind of see the, the, the pattern, the process here is that if I'm raising that emotional baseline, I've just become aware, or maybe I've been aware a little while that the relationship that I'm in is not the most emotionally mature or healthy. And, and I'm starting to wake up to that, or I'm starting to wake up to my own uh, emotional immaturity, but we'll, we'll, again, we'll talk about that later, but I'm waking up to this emotional immaturity in my relationship. So I need to self-care because I need to get myself in a really good place because I've most likely been in a position where I've been continually placed in this one down position made to feel less than, and it turns out that I, I'm, it's okay for me to have my own thoughts and opinions, feelings, beliefs, all of those things. And so then as I'm doing that, then I get that PhD in gaslighting because I'm starting to notice that, oh, wow, if, if I don't say the right thing, then I am questioned to the point where then I just, I question my own reality and then get out of those unproductive conversations, set healthy boundaries, and then know that those boundaries are going to be challenged. And then that leads to the, and know that you will never give the other person the aha moment or the epiphany. It has to come from them. As Glover said, as you stop reinforcing things that you are not willing to tolerate, the people around you then will be given the opportunity to behave differently. It gives the relationship a chance to survive and grow. That's a fair statement. This goes back to the whole reason why I feel like I started the podcast and and the way that I, I work in my practice is that when people find out about the concepts of narcissism or even extreme emotional immaturity, then the books do the books, the podcasts, the blogs, they say it's not going to, it's not going to work. They're not going to change. And you just need to get out as soon as you can. Now, while that might end up being the case and, and it very well or most likely will be, but you're in your relationship and you're finding these things out for the first time. So how can you in that moment go, well, guess I'm done because that's not the way it works as a human being, especially when you have kids together, when you have commingled finances, or if you've been the person, the stay at home parent. And, and so it is financially scary, or we're in a time right now of a, of a pretty big recession. And so there are real things that are, that are happening that make just popping out of a relationship really difficult. And, and that's the reality. And this is where the psychology of the peanut gallery can be very frustrating where if you are opening up to then, right, a Switzerland friend, and they're going to give you, well, there's two sides to every coin, or well, it sounds like he's not a horrible person. But even more importantly, then if you uh, happen to have expressed that your fear around finances or those sort of things, you never know, the peanut gallery might also say things like, well, I mean, is it worth it? You know, finance, finances, I, you, you just got to get out. You'll figure it out. You'll figure things that people will, people will find a way. And that's really easy for somebody that's not in your situation to say that. So 
that's that's where I wanted to go with boundaries. Now, we're going to start talking about a nice guy. We'll talk a little bit about nice guy syndrome, and then we'll jump into the differences between the three. Glover says that a nice guy can, in essence, be described as a person who doesn't think that he is okay being alone or being by himself. So because of conditioning by family, society, then the nice guys start to believe that the only way that they that they exist, that they'll be loved, they'll be accepted, that they'll be liked or they have their needs met is by becoming this person that everybody else wants them to be, which it starts to sound a little bit like emotional immaturity and narcissism. Am I right? Because if they do not really have a true sense of self, then they feel like, no, I can, I can be somebody that I need to be so that then people will like me. So he says that a man suffering with the Mr. Nice Guy syndrome believes that they need to hide all the traits that they possess that are likely to trigger negative responses from the people around them. But then at some point, then it does, they do get triggered and then they get angry and then they apologize and then they go into a pout mode or they withdraw and then their, their kind spouse then rescues them. So he says that the term nice guy is also used to describe somebody that thinks they're entitled to things like romantic relationships just by virtue of being nice. So it's as if this is a privilege that they've earned because of the work that they do, that they provide in the home or they, okay, it's like, well, I took you here. So then therefore you owe me. And according to Glover, he says this entitlement forces nice guys to, to form covert contracts, such an important concept, targeting their affection and often getting offended when the recipient of their niceness doesn't then reciprocate their feelings. They've, they've created this covert contract something that the their spouse doesn't even know about, but that the spouse is failing to live up to. The covert contracts that these nice guys create then start to become this almost like this GPS or roadmap for their life, which does not typically result in the nice guy getting what they want. And so then they feel then they feel like that they nobody cares about them. And they often can go to this victim mentality. And now the nice guy or the nice pathologically kind woman in their life is going to come rescue them. Because she knows that this guy is going to be a total jerk until, until she can now go and, and massage his fragile ego. So the nice guy then often feels like there aren't any alternatives. So they keep doing the same things. They're stuck in the same habits even when they aren't working. And this is where you just see people get almost in this stalemate or standoff. So according to, to Glover, most nice guys share a common pattern regarding their upbringing and their societal exposure. So, and this is where I think this is interesting. So I talk a lot about abandonment. I talk about attachment. If you look at the concepts of things like an anxious attachment or when people, when people say, no, I just want my partner to be curious and to understand me. But when their partner finally does and, and it can feel overwhelming because then they say, well, not like that. Or yeah, but now they had to be told to do it or it's been too long or I'm not sure if I can now trust that this is real or lean in that a lot of those attachment issues are typically viewed as mom issues. Because mother is the primary caregiver when the kid is growing up with mom. And this is where you can see that even a mom doing amazingly well and doing great things and has great intentions can often be overwhelmed herself if she's in an unhealthy relationship or if she has a lot of kids or if she's managing maybe like her own parents or, or a challenge in her life. So at times when the kid then needs validation, needs to know that they're loved or that they, they matter, the mom might not have the bandwidth in that moment to validate the kid's emotions. And so they may hear things like, hey, not right now, bud, not right now, champ. Or, you know, it's really not as big of a deal as you think. Or, you know, your friend really didn't mean that. Or, well, what did you do to, to what we, what, how did you participate in that as well? So then the kid can start to say, okay, I don't understand this game because as a baby, I emote and then everybody jumps and meets all my needs. And right now I'm looking for those needs to be met, these emotional needs. 
and the person that I adore and care about the most, my my mother is saying maybe my emotions aren't really worthy of talking about or that they might not be real. So they're probably the wrong emotions and something must be wrong with me. So then Glover says that there's a similar thing happening over in the relationship that men have with their dad. He says that men who are not well connected to their fathers then often develop this nice guy syndrome. And he said that sometimes fathers are absent emotionally. I think often they are and physically because they, they also suffer from nice guy syndrome or they, they don't know how to sit with any discomfort on their own. And so they just feel like, okay, I guess if I just go work all the time and provide, then everybody will jump up and down every time I walk in the door. And so he talks about, and, and I'm going to talk about this in future episodes, this concept around like the masculine and feminine uh, energy and polarity. But Glover says that then when fathers are absent emotionally or physically, then that stops them from being these uh, role models. And he calls it a masculine role model. We're not talking about toxic masculinity, but just a masculine role model to their son. And he says that without a strong male presence when growing up, they end up in the company of oftentimes strong female personalities. And he said in the company of their mothers, female teachers, sisters, that sometimes men then can get comfortable treating women as their, as just simply their role model, the person that they have to impress the most. And, and that sounds like a good thing, but I think if you see it in this context, then it's like, I must do everything I can to impress the female in my life. But now as an adult human being, it's so that then she will finally accept me and love me. It's almost like this. It is. It's a, it's a mom issue. You know, the dad's having a mom issue or the husband's having a mom issue now. So then while boys do need this female presence in their lives, that Glover argues that it's more important for the male to be surrounded with a lot of that, those strong male role models. Because then he says, without relevant male figures, men spend their formative ages learning how to connect with women. And he said, while this doesn't necessarily sound bad, it combines this with the lack of masculine energy turning men into nice guys. And he said, this imbalance of masculine and feminine energy leaves men in a cycle of seeking validation from everywhere else instead of self-validating. And this is how nice guy syndrome is nurtured. Okay, so this is what I love about preaching vulnerability and authenticity and honesty and also having a podcast platform to speak from. So I hit pause, actually, and I was going to go run to the facilities. But I also got an email that said that an overnight order that I had ordered was delivered to the front desk. So I thought I would go up there and check the front desk and see if it had indeed been dropped off. I'm still recording this well before business hours, before opening the opening bell of therapy or or the world. And I go up there and it's not there. And then here's the thing that I think is so fascinating. I had already unlocked the door. The door unlocks with an Allen wrench. And I look over at the door and I just seem puzzled because I my mind told me it was not open. So then I go over there with the Allen wrench and then I lock it, but my brain was telling me that I had unlocked it. And so then I decide to look outside because maybe they dropped off instead of dropping something off at the front desk because the door was locked, even though it was actually unlocked and I just locked it. Then I open the door, I walk outside, I look around to see if they'd put it behind a a plant or something and I hear that door close and then that's when it hits me. Wait a minute, I had unlocked the door a couple of hours ago. So I actually just locked the door and then I turned around, gave a tug on the door and it was locked. And now I, I, what a first world problem. I didn't even have my phone. Oh, the horror. So I felt like a pioneer back in the old days crossing the plains because the only thing I could do is voice text on my Apple watch and listen to podcasts and audiobooks from the tiny speaker in my watch. Oh, the horror. Can you even believe that? 
So at that point then, I was able to fire up my GPS device so I could get credit for a walk while I then spoke texted people to see if I could have anybody come and rescue me with a key. Again, just like the pioneers. And uh, my wonderful intern, Nate Christensen, our associate, he was able to come and let me in. So we're back. But now I want to talk about the, let's put on our psychology hats and let's take a dive into the murky waters of nice guy syndrome, emotional immaturity, and, and narcissism. So if we go back to, let's start with nice guy syndrome. So our pal, Mr. Nice Guy, is somebody then who generally believes that he does have to bend over backwards to be loved or accepted by others because he's afraid of being himself and he feels this need to wear a mask of this universal likability. And now, ironically, this actually makes him seem less genuine. And that is one of those things that I think people don't know what they don't know, that he feels like I can be everybody's everyone. And I remember having conversations with nice guys. And this admittedly was when I was in more of my own emotionally immature or nice guy phase where you just think, you know, I could hang with anybody because we'll have a good time. And and I, I can, I can in essence be whoever I need to be in that moment. So then nice guys going back to that again, ironically in, in doing that, looking for this universal likability, it makes them less genuine because they lack consistency. And so that if you're in a relationship then with a nice guy, then they're going to say what they need to say in that moment. And then you will hear them be a different person around somebody else. And then that does, it causes you to kind of feel like, wait, is my relationship not real? So nice guys then tend to form these covert contracts, expecting reciprocation from their niceness and, and particularly in things like romantic situations. So when these expectations aren't met, then they get frustrated. So now let's enter emotional immaturity. So emotionally immature individuals, on the other hand, they struggle with understanding and managing their emotions. So they may tend to react impulsively or, or inappropriately in situations, and they're often unable to handle discomfort or stress. And they struggle to empathize with others because that emotional immature lens is very selfish and self-centered. So unlike Mr. Nice Guy, they are not necessarily trying to please others. Instead, they might act out of immediate emotional needs or wants without considering the broader context or the feelings of others, which is what that looks like of them having less or no empathy. And trying to act out of immediate emotional needs is getting rid of their own discomfort at all costs. And once that discomfort's gone, they feel relieved. And since they don't, they lack empathy, then they feel relief, but they don't think about what it feels like to be you. Now, narcissism is a whole different kettle of fish. Narcissists have an inflated sense of self-importance and they have a deep need for attention and admiration. So unlike Mr. Nice Guy, who shapes himself around others' desires, the narcissist expects others to revolve around them. So they're not concerned with pleasing others, but rather with being admired. And then unlike the emotionally immature, they can be quite strategic in managing impressions, although their empathy for others is also shallow. So if we, if we compare, we contrast these, all three can struggle with genuine reciprocal relationships. So the nice guy might struggle because of his covert contracts and his fear of being himself. The emotionally immature, they'll struggle because of their impulsivity and their lack of empathy and their desire to get out of that discomfort right now. And the narcissist will struggle due to their self-centeredness and their shallow empathy. However, the motivations though, and this is what's key, they differ greatly. So the nice guy seeks approval. The emotionally immature acts out of immediate emotional needs to get rid of discomfort. And the narcissist seeks admiration. 
So their self-perceptions can also differ. Nice guys often see themselves as victims who give so much but get so little. Emotionally immature individuals might not fully grasp their issues. And then narcissists typically view themselves as superior to others. So while all three might run into relationship difficulties, the underlying issues and behaviors, uh, they vary considerably. So it's like three people getting lost in a city. One's trying too hard to follow everybody's directions. The second is reacting randomly without a map. And then the third insists that they know the way and they refuse to ask for help. So let's dive into the message from the group. So the person says, and I got their permission that I could read this. They said, hey, I am new here. I really believe that my husband may be a narcissist. But then he goes and does this yesterday. And she says, mini novel coming. And I love that she says, I'm sorry, because I really want people to, to just not have to feel like they have to apologize. But that even plays into what we've talked about already on today's podcast of people feeling this need that their, you know, that their emotions or their stories are for some, for some reason are not okay. So we need to apologize for them because I'm so grateful this person shares this. She said, I was able to keep my emotions under control and I felt a huge feeling of happiness and compassion for her. She said, this is after days of his absolute abuse and demeaning behavior towards me. She said, I finally felt like I was detaching and while I'm experiencing extremely extreme loneliness, I was able to be nice and not reactive, which again is well done. She said, well, then he turns the new leaf and he wants to work on things again, but now I understand why he does what he does. He withholds love and care if he doesn't get a steady stream or affirmations and appreciation and he admitted that it's selfish, but it's what he does. She said, I was floored that he could admit it, and it's true. That's exactly what he does. He discards me. He tried several times to override my boundaries of, she said, I will not be able to be affectionate and emotionally close when you discard me because I touch on some childhood wounds and I feel hurt. But somehow he stayed calm and agreed that we need to communicate so we both are heard. She said, hello, four pillars. That I hope he can embrace. So he got me flowers. She said, I fear this is the love bombing. And I asked him why he got them before jumping to conclusions. He texted me after I left the house to run an errand expressing his worry and scared. I was only seeing the flowers as her saying, attaboy, good job. She said, I did the four pillars. And we were able to have and leave the conversation heard and calm. So she says, what do I do to continue this trend? I've worked extremely hard to not fix him. And I want to hold my boundaries until I see some long lasting change. She said the longest we've gone without him going narcissist is less than a week. She said, do I withhold the affection to see change? Or she says, I'm a very codependent person and I see myself getting desperate for affection and attention. So I'm afraid I'll feed the narcissism by giving him what he needs essentially without showing me that he has changed. But she said, but I don't want to discourage his attempts to be better. So should he be actively pursuing education or how to communicate better? asking what, what she's found, what she's noticed, or she said, or do I even offer that information up? So I, I reached out to her and wanted to cover this because there is so much gold to be mined out of this question. And then I read the question and I immediately start thinking, okay, I want to do an episode on this. And then I realized that there are 15 comments by people in the group and the comments were amazing. They really were. So I want to go through the comments actually first, and then I'm going to weigh in on my thoughts. So one of the first comments is by somebody that just really gives some really amazing advice. And she said, if he wants to change, he will independent of what you do. He will change if you leave because he is deciding to do it. You don't need to coddle or reward him. If he doesn't want to change, he won't change independent of you. You do have some level of influence, but how much again depends on what he actually wants to grow up in himself or not. Make your decisions based on honoring yourself, given the realities that you see, not outcomes you hope to see from him. 
She said, we do unwittingly become part of reinforcing cycles that are toxic. Always good to honestly self-assess where that might be happening and then honor yourself by stepping out of toxic cycles. I feel like I want to say, like I always say, all of those things. Because this is that concept where, and I, I appreciate in the original message where she said that they the longest they've gone, and I call this the shelf life, the narcissistic shelf life, is a week. And I really, I think I've said this on previous podcasts, that I've seen the shelf life go as long as two weeks. So, but that one week or less is is pretty standard. And what is unfortunate is that, yes, this is the behavior that you've always wanted to see, and it alleviates your own discomfort and anxiety. And then he is now getting some praise and validation from actually doing this thing, but it has to be a thing that he is doing that is happening internally, because if he is doing it, which in this scenario, I worry that is the case, that he's doing it because it is the right button to push to get his needs met, and he's getting validation, that then that will last until it doesn't. Because remember that somebody seeking external validation is doing that because they don't feel good about themselves. So then they're saying, okay, I don't feel good. So you, you over there, you make me feel good. So in the scenario, in this sense, so he had already, he had already been mean. She said he had been narcissistic for the past, I think, week. And then she holds her boundary. So he's not getting his needs met. So the button that he pushed the button that worked is the, man, I think I get it. I think I can do this. I think I've changed. And I'm worried that you think that I'm, I just gave you the flowers because that it wasn't sincere, but I have changed. And he actually feels good because he's watching her emote and react and not engage and get angry. So you can see that right now, then it hit everybody's soft spot. So he's getting the validation. He feels better. She feels better because he's saying the right things. And so then the key now is what is that work that will be done? Because I believe that so often the narcissist or the emotionally immature may even mean it in that very moment because it's the right thing to say to get them out of that situation or to alleviate their own discomfort or anxiety or their insecurities. But I feel like where the proverbial rubber meets the road then is what happens next. Because I do feel like when people say the thing to get them, I was going to say the right thing. When they say a thing to get them out of that moment or to alleviate their anxiety, then they feel better. No, I'm good. I get it. And then that's where we start introducing the concept of shelf life. Because now is the opportunity to do the work. When I work with, I work with a lot of people that struggle with, again, unhealthy coping mechanisms. And so let's talk about people who turn to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism. So, so often when they have a setback or relapse, whatever we want to call it, and then they feel that that shame afterward. They say, man, I am never doing this again. And in that moment, it feels legitimately like, yeah, because I don't like the way I feel. So I'm not. I'm not going to ever do it again. And then that alleviates their anxiety and gets rid of that discomfort. And they feel better. So what do they do? They wake up the next day and they just go about their daily business. So then it ends up being, I will never do it again until I do it again. And after we get rid of that anxiety or we get rid of that discomfort, that is the opportunity to now take action. So now that person hopefully is is going to, maybe they find a group, maybe they join the path back, maybe they look online and they look up, find the new drug and they find out that they need to learn how their, how the dopamine system works, or they need to learn tools to sit with that discomfort or start doing a mindfulness practice or a spiritual practice. But it, there needs to be action taken or else then we'll just have that concept of entropy where things will just go right back to the way that they were. And then sometimes they can be worse because now what is wrong with me? I said it was going to be the last time. I really felt like I meant it this time and I did it again. 
So the next, now the, the original poster said, thank you. Thank you for that. I know I struggle to rescue. So should I send him the stuff I found on communicating better or wait for him to ask for it? Again, I love the fact that we're having these questions because so many people are wondering these things. And unless you have been in this situation, it's easy to, to give some pretty simple advice of either somebody's going to say, yeah, of course you give it to him. You found the information and you want to share. But if your experience in the past has been when you share information, now the person says, oh, so you're the expert now, huh? Or, okay, I'll read that if you'll read something of mine. And then they send you something that is saying an exact opposite point. So again, here come the answers and they are so good. The first person that responded said, and they are so right. I don't think there are really right or wrong answers. If you give it to him, what he does with that is information for you about where he is. If you don't give it to him, what he does of his own accord is information for you about where he's at. And I have a lot of sessions where somebody will say, hey, I'm in here. I'm doing the work. And and it's their husband or their wife, let's say, is the more emotionally immature. I'm not going into full-blown narcissism. But that person will say, no, I'm good. You can go talk to Tony and you can try to figure your stuff out, but I'm good. But then they're good again until they're not. The original poster said, I always worry that I'm over-functioning and I I appreciate that concept. The reply was, it was a freeing day for me, this is a person responding, when they realized a lot of learning in relationships is done through trial and error and that's okay. A lot of us overfunction. It's an instinctive response to underfunctioning, and it just makes you normal. But that trial and error, I think, is the thing that is really it can be tricky because if that trial and error has in the past led to you feeling worse about yourself because of the concepts of gaslighting or you the crazy making, then then it can feel like I don't even want to try again because I don't want to put myself through that. And that's where the body can, again, start to keep the score and we start to feel the anxiety or stress if you are going to try to have those conversations. But when you start coming from more of this place of a healthy ego, then then sometimes it, it is going to make sense or you are going to want to then try and say, okay, if you really do feel like you get it now, then I would love to have some conversations around healthier communication. Or maybe I think we should go see a therapist. And I do call that introducing some good old positive tension. Because if we are so afraid that the we're going to have contention, that we avoid tension altogether, then we're really going to probably go right back to where we were. So introducing positive tension might be, hey, tell me more about what you get now. What do you feel like you understand? What makes this different? And if that answer is, I mean, I get it. I've been a jerk. Well, tell me more about that. What do you mean by jerk? And because if it really is just this surface level response, this that's going to have a certain shelf life that is just there to get the person out of the out of the moment, then it's not going to be very deep. And you are going to find that very quickly where the, the emotionally immature person may say, look, I said, I get it. I said, I'm sorry. I said, I'm not going to do it anymore. Shouldn't that be enough? And there it is. There's the response we were waiting for. Another person responded, well, just said, and I, I thought this was interesting. I, I've only run the group that I've run, but I so appreciate this because if this is what's going on in other groups, then bless your heart, people that are trying to find community in groups. But the person, the original author of the post said, thank you. Some of the other groups I, I am in, they're so rigid on you just stop helping. And while I may, with my therapist hat on, I may say, you know, I, I feel like that probably isn't isn't necessarily going to be great for your amygdala or your central nervous system. 
because you're going to, you, there's a, a high probability that you're going to go in and try to share this communication information and then it may turn around and be thrown back at you. But if what it feels like to be you is that you want to try, then I'm going to be right there beside you and, and join you and then say, okay, now what information do you have? Now you have more data for yourself to self-confront and change because ultimately you can only change you. And then someone else did respond and says different groups definitely have different vibes. Uh, This person's in a few too, but she said, I think the bigger trick is figuring out what is actually helpful and what isn't, which is so well said. What is helpful and what isn't for you? Now, in the grand scheme of things, I worry that the the pathologically kind person is going to continually put themselves in a position where they may feel like there is hope, and then it turns around and and it has, a, again, a shelf life, and then they are made to feel bad, and that is part of the trauma bond, and it can also really just zap the the energy or the soul or the sense of self out of somebody that is continually trying to better the marriage. There's a couple more. Somebody else said, and I really, I really liked this. They said, these are all healthy questions and it shows that you love him and also want the relationship and you want to hold your boundaries. You want to do what's healthy for the marriage. She said, keep pressing in. It will happen one step at a time. Failures will happen also. And the part I appreciate is make sure you give yourself grace. Now, why I like that so much is this person, that, that sounds like very positive advice. And there are going to be people that that is not their experience. That when, when we say do what's healthy for the marriage, then there are absolutely people in the group where what is healthy for the marriage is to have a separation so that their, their amygdala can calm down so they can get rid of all that, that cortisol dump. And so they can start to breathe and then start working on their emotional baseline so they can show up in a better way. But if somebody's in a place where they are still trying to figure out uh, maybe it isn't as bad as I think it is, and they continue to try and do what's best for the marriage, and that means doing some of these rule outs, and, and then if that does turn around, and I guess it sounds dramatic, but blow up in their face, then give yourself grace, and yes, that didn't rhyme. And, and here's why I like when you can have a group of people that all have different experiences, but they're there for the, the good, the greater good, and and we can look at all of the the information and people's advice and see what works for you or what you might want to implement in your own uh, healing or recovery strategy. So somebody said, even the flowers is him manipulating you. And she said, I'm so sorry to say that it's him silencing you, putting you in a position where he cannot be held accountable. She said, everything from her experience that is done is about escaping accountability. Now he can go. It's never enough. You can never let anything go. And I see where she's coming from because then he can say, look, I gave you flowers. I said, I get it. So aren't we done? Can't we just get over it? Can we not talk about this anymore and put this behind us? She said that she feels like that they never do it for us. It's for them. Flowers, gifts, apologies, all of it to silence us and put us in a one down position so they can blame us if we complain, try to hold them accountable, set boundaries or ask for any need to be met. She said, I'm so sorry. I know this is harsh. But from her standpoint, she feels like it really is what it is. So the original author then said, so then what do I do when the person gives me these things? I feel paralyzed and I feel stuck if I react out of anger or disgust. I felt like I did a good job with the flowers, how I handled them. I didn't want to point a finger or tell him that he's manipulating me. And she said, do I think he's suddenly healed? No, but I also don't want to be bitter, angry, and judgmental either. And someone jumped in and said that they did feel like that she did an amazing job. And she said, you're not the problem. It sounds like you're doing everything in your power to make this work. You're not supposed to do anything in particular, but it's helpful to know what we are dealing with, what the mindset is and what the patterns are like. 
the best thing you can do is just keep learning and take care of yourself in the best possible way. She gave a shout out to me and said, raise your emotional baseline, keep your boundaries for your own protection. The desperation was the hardest part for, for the person that was now commenting. She said, for me, I just had to work on having uh, no expectation because he was, he was just not going to meet my needs. And she said, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. So where I want to chime in with that then is I feel like that all of that advice is is amazing and and I echo it and I believe that there what I love about this question and these comments is that it really does show that there are a lot of variables that go into trying to make these decisions. There's a lot of consistency in the way that the emotionally immature narcissistic person shows up, but ultimately and and this has been a thing that I just am, I feel like this is one of those where once you you notice it or you're aware of it, it's hard to unsee it, is that when you can get out of that amygdala hijack, when you finally do have those tools and you know you're not gonna you're you're not expected to be perfect in using them, but what you can start to notice is that it goes back to you are allowed to have your own opinions, your own thoughts, your own experiences, and you don't even have to defend them. Because in a healthy relationship, where we're looking at love, not control, there is curiosity, there is empathy, there is compassion, there's kindness, there's patience. And in those scenarios, then you can you can not only express yourself, but when your spouse has a different opinion and it's shared from a place of, man, I appreciate what you're sharing, you validate, and then they say, here's where I'm at. Now we can start to take a look at, maybe I wanna, I wanna add some of these other tools that this person I care about Maybe I want to add some of those into my repertoire as well, because it feels just emotionally freeing and liberating when you not only feel heard, but then you can also explore what it would feel like to to look at things differently or take things from a different angle, because that is part of the human experience of growth, of being able to to admit and recognize, of course, I don't know everything. And it's okay for me to say my bad or I'm sorry. And and then when I can get through and when, I, when I'm when i not trying to continually just burn all this emotional energy and calories on trying to defend myself, then I can just really start to use that time, that passion, that energy to start to explore what my thoughts and feelings are, what my beliefs are, and how are those serving me? And then do I want to take a, a look inward and do I want to change what that feels like to be me? Because now I can do that from a place of being very intentional. And that's where you actually have some more control than you think of, of what that future looks like, what your relationships look like, and how you show up in not only your relationships, but in life in general. So thank you so much for joining me on today's episode, for taking the time. So here we are. Now we have all these different parts and pieces. And my hope is that then everything came together where we recognize now that there's, there's sure, there's emotional immaturity, there's, there's narcissism, and there's also this nice guy syndrome. And so when the person in this example is showing up the way they are, what are we seeing? Is it a combination of all three? Is this just an emotionally immature person that doesn't like to sit with that discomfort? So they are saying the right things to be able to alleviate that discomfort? Or is this truly the malignant, malicious narcissist that is putting themselves above all, which it doesn't feel like that's the case? And then is there a little bit of that nice guy syndrome in here as well of like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to do these things and then you'll, you'll think I'm amazing. And then we won't really have to have a difficult conversation. And so 
part of the whole journey of creating this podcast and then the work that I get to do on a daily basis that I love is, is being able to have conversations, difficult conversations and that word narcissism. And I'm, I'm, it's in the title of my podcast for Pete's sake, but that gets thrown around a lot. And there is so much baggage and emotion and negativity around it because it can really be bad. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy families. It can, the narcissist can still have these lasting residual effects that will, that will carry on in in a sense through generations, the concept of generational trauma, but we need to do something about that. And part of that is being able to just have the conversations and allow people the space to breathe that are in these unhealthy relationships. And so if, if that narcissist word sounds just overwhelming and too much, then let's look at it from a place of emotional immaturity. Because regardless of what we want to call it, the the point is that you're starting to wake up to these unhealthy behaviors in your relationship or maybe even in yourself. And there are tools. There are good tools that can be used. There's a lot of garbage out there as well that can just make it even worse and give the emotionally immature narcissist even more opportunity to to manipulate, to gaslight, to try to put somebody in one down position. But really start to lean in and trust your gut and then take the things that really help and and feel more uh, in alignment with what it feels like to be you. And then you are on that path of enlightenment going from, I did not know what I did not know. And now I know and I'm trying to do, but I don't do it very often or very well. And eventually I'm going to do it more than I don't. And then you become. And before you know it, I can grow a bald, uh, I can grow a ponytail, my bald head. I'm a Zen master and I'm just uh, levitating above the floor during my sessions and I got a long way to go to get there, but I really like that concept of just becoming and not having to manage other people's emotions or anxiety and being able to sit with my discomfort and look at that as an opportunity for growth. So thanks for hanging in here and I will see you next time on Waking Up to Narcissism.